and welcome to Mostly Weather. Fact or fiction, what's your favourite book? In this episode, the panel of singled out books that in some way bring the essence of weather to life for them. I'm Jeff Norwood-Brown and with me are the Mostly Weather podcast team. Broadcaster, operational meteorologist and communications expert Helen Roberts. Hi Jeff. Broadcaster, meteorologist and Olympic forecaster Penny Tranter. Hello there. Hi. And our favourite archivist and font of all historic meteorological knowledge, Catherine Ross. Hello. Shall I start? I've uh, <laughs> The book I've brought with me is um, The Observer's Handbook. This is the book we were encouraged to study when we joined the Met Office and describes weather phenomena in exquisite and extraordinary detail. It's not a brilliant plot, but it does represent the start of my Met career. So rather than review it, I thought I'd read out a few passages from it throughout this episode. Drizzle. Fairly uniform precipitation comprised exclusively of very fine drops of water, less than 0.5 millimetres in diameter, and very close to one another. The drops appear almost afloat, thus making visible and even slight movements of air and the effect of their individual impact on water surfaces perceptible. So, Jeff, I think the book talks about many different types of drizzle. Is that right? I seem to remember from my observer days, I think we had uh, 10 different types of drizzle. That's, <laughs> and that's incredible. How do they differ? It was uh, well. It was what they were combined with, uh, so you could have rain and drizzle, or snow and drizzle, that sort of thing. But it was also the intensity of the drizzle, which I seem to remember was largely based on not by the amount the rain gauge was telling you, but um, how rivulets were forming on windows. That was the way to uh, judge the intensity of drizzle. I think uh, it was Peter Kay that summed it up as drizzle is that fine stuff that soaks you without you noticing. Yeah, it's just a nuisance, isn't it? (laughs) Can I ask the panel, what book have you brought with you today? Helen. Well, I've brought something a little bit different, actually. It's called Masters of Uncertainty. It's by Phaedra Dafer. And it's all about the decision-making process of weather forecasters and how the weather impacts people. So the societal impacts of the weather. Oh, right. Okay. Penny. My book is The Perfect Storm and it's by Sebastian Junger. It is a book based on a real life perfect storm, as it was called, that happened in the autumn of 1991 off the southeastern coast of Canada and the coast of northeast USA, the sort of New England coast. And it's all around the story of a swordfish boat that is lost at sea and the six seamen on it as well. Okay, so is this fact or fiction or a mixture? It's based on this perfect storm that happened in the autumn 1991. And the book is basically fact. There is a bit of supposition because the boat was lost at sea, the Andrea Gale, He tries to paint a picture of what the last hours look like for the boat. Okay, sounds brilliant. So um, I think we'll start, though, with uh, with Catherine. Which book did you bring with you, Catherine? Well, I'm on the end now for something completely different side (laughs) of things. I decided to follow my inner child and talk about uh, C.S. Lewis's Narnia, and in particular, one of the books, which is The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. Some people may have seen one of the at least two dramatizations that have been around in in my lifetime. Um, 
it's a lovely children's story about some children that go through a wardrobe and first they're going through coats and then they're going through trees and suddenly they're in this wonderful magical land and then they interact with talking animals and and various other mythological creatures but once you're an adult and you reread the book you suddenly start to see that actually there's quite a lot of allegory going on and a lot of the nice pretty stories and and things actually sort of have a deeper mostly quite religious sort of meaning one of the big things that stuck out for me was some of the weather symbolism that Lewis uses in the book when they first enter the land it's under the control of an, of an evil white witch who has imposed an eternal winter it's been a hundred years of winter and Narnia is the land where it's always winter but never Christmas this is not a true story then is that, is that what you're saying <laughs> um I don't think it's true but I do always look in the back of a wardrobe just in case so uh, you've mentioned it's always winter there so what sort of feeling does that give throughout the book the book starts in that sort of uh, phasing and it's it's everything is sort of frightening and evil and there's no real life anywhere. Very much sort of a theme of winter as a bad, cold, lifeless kind of environment and somewhere where you can get stuck in winter, essentially. Um, and you know, the idea is that you know Christmas is the, the sort of the bright moments and, and after that you sort of start moving out eventually of winter. We know that that's not quite right. It's a, it's a little bit longer, um, but that's the general idea. And then, of course, sort of in the book, you know, various sort of good things start to happen and so suddenly you know the magic is broken and Father Christmas manages to turn up and hot on his heels comes spring and there's you know there's a lovely description of you know of all the, the different spring flowers um, and the golden laburnums and um, translucent leaves of the beech trees and the sort of it paints a picture that you know quite recently something I've been looking at out of my window here the very young leaves um, and the celandine and the flowers of spring and that all kind of marks a change towards a much more sort of hopeful period in the book um, as it sort of often is in the in the year itself. What sort of um, era did uh, Lewis write this in? What year did the book come out? The book is kind of early 20th century Um, it's not recent shall we say Um, but um, he was working at the same time as Tolkien and Lewis Carroll. Do you think if it was written today it might be slightly different? I don't know I mean you take a look at it's a film but you take a look at Frozen for example and there's still quite a strong leaning in the direction of looking at weather, looking at the cold, the you know the the icy cold of Elsa's heart and things like that but you know it's it's not that different. That reminds me, Catherine, when you mentioned Frozen, which is a film that I think many of us around the table particularly enjoy. (laughs) Maybe not, Jeff. Um, (laughs) Because another element or weather related element of that story is how her emotions are affected by the weather or rather her emotions affect the weather. And that sort of almost brings us back to the social science element, which I'll be talking about in my extremely different book how we we can be really emotionally affected by the weather can't we and and she had this sort of loss of control of ability to control her emotions which ended up you know causing a similar situation a sort of eternal winter on eternal ice 
Yeah, I mean, this is um, uh, the books that come to mind for me are uh, Moby Dick and Wuthering Heights, which also, I mean, especially with Wuthering Heights, the characters, uh, Heathcliff, he always arrives in a storm, you know, and um, has a very tempestuous character about him. And that's reflected whenever he arrives in the story. And and Moby Dick, the culmination of chasing the whale, don't want to spoil anything for anybody, but that all happens in a storm as well, you know, and you can see that the authors are trying to create the emotion reflected in the weather. It's interesting that winter always seems to be evil. It does often seem to be that the winter is the dead, cold, evil period. And I don't know, I think I I rather like snow personally, but Mm. (laughs) I don't know about anyone else. Well, this is uh, going back to Dickens as well. This is uh, where we get the uh, idealistic white Christmas from, isn't it? Because Christmas was were generally whiter when Dickens was writing. So we have this very sort of Victorian picture of Christmases are always white. I'm thinking of artists as well, uh, especially Turner, who use uh, the weather to, to create emotion. But is there another book that anybody's picked up on? I think we've spoken before, Jeff, about Shakespeare and his use of weather metaphors there's there's uh, plenty yes. of them scattered throughout his writing isn't there I'm sure yes and he's given us many of the weather terms that we still refer to today in fact um one of my favorites you know, he refers to the, you know, the darling buds of May well of course that became a tv series yes exactly yeah <laughs> started Catherine Zeta-Jones's career if I remember right <laughs> I would love it if broadcasters would use the word tempest instead of low pressure uh, that would be fantastic <laughs> let's get a bit of emotion into these sorts of things um but i suppose that's the difference between the meteorology that we provide in the met office um and authors you know we have to be very factual about everything and take the emotion out of everything but obviously when there's a good storm brewing at night you know thunder and lightning clashing around it's fantastic i think when pers- shall we three meet again <laughs> in thunder lightning or in rain ah uh, yes macbeth Macbeth, yes, oh. three witches. <laughs> I studied the one uh, Shakespeare play in school and that was Macbeth, so thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's another quote from The Observer's Handbook. Diamond dust, precipitation which falls from a clear sky as very small ice crystals, often so tiny they appear to be suspended in the air. The crystals are visible mainly when they glitter in the sunshine, giving rise to generally well-marked halo phenomena. Diamond dust can be observed in the polar regions and in the interior of continents in winter, especially in clear, calm and cold weather. It is not often observed in the United Kingdom. I've seen some diamond dust actually in Finland, in Lapish Finland. It's absolutely beautiful. It's the sort of thing I can I can imagine being in Narnia and definitely in in the land of frozen as well. Everyone who's seen it describes it as absolutely amazing. Yeah. So Penny. The perfect storm. Did you want to talk about that? Yeah, I mean, it really is um, a very interesting uh, storm for us as meteorologists. We, we love a good storm, don't we? You think about the 1987 storm that affected the southern part of the UK and everything that fell out of that, you know, the start of the National Severe Weather Warning Service that we now have right across the UK. But for this storm that makes for the um, storm in the perfect storm, by Sebastian Junger. This is based on a real superstorm, if you like, called the Halloween storm, which formed in late October 1991, as I say, off the sort of eastern Canada coast. 
sort of between the cold Labrador current and the warm Gulf Stream current. And that is a place where we see an awful lot of Atlantic storms brew and develop you know, cause mayhem, really. But this storm back in 1991 was exceptional. It's up there in the top five US and Canadian storms that we've seen over the last hundred years. And what happens is that the weather setup is that there is an area of high pressure, really quite an intense area of high pressure over sort of central and eastern Canada. And what happens is that a low develops to the east of it off the coast of Canada and New England. And also the jet stream is very, very strong as well. So we have this area of low pressure that develops and sort of peaks at the end of October. And it sort of dissipates, if you like, just off the Grand Banks, off southeast Canada. But then it kind of gets rejuvenated because to the south is Hurricane Grace, and it moves northwards and it gets tangled up in the jet stream. And with the remnants of the other area of low pressure, it all comes together and we get this sort of superstorm. And in fact, what actually happens is it develops another hurricane, which is really quite unusual for that far north. And it develops into a really exceptional storm, what they call a nor'easter in that part of the world where you have these incredibly strong winds blowing in from the northeast. Looking at some of the weather records there, they saw gusts 80, 90 knots, possibly up to 100 knots, which is, you know, well into the hundreds of miles per hour. But the other thing as well was that they had boys that were drifting around that part of the world and they recorded waves over the height of 100 feet. So you are talking about a very, very chaotic, savage sea. And you have this swordfish longliner boat, which was 72 feet in length, called the Andrea Gale. The previous trip that they'd had out onto the fishing banks, they hadn't caught very many fish. So they'd gone back into port, into Gloucester, Massachusetts. Um, 10,000 fishermen had died from Gloucester since 1623 when it first yeah when it first became that main fishing port so you can see you know this is steeped in history and culture you know you've got lots of alpha males you've got lots of men with sea in their blood and they want money from fishing but what about the forecast penny was the andrea gale aware that this weather was coming in so what happens is they come back in to gloucester the owner of the boat says ah you're no good you fishermen So the captain, a man called Billy Tyne, says, right, we're going back out again. They don't get very good fishing. So he really pushes it and says, right, we're going to go out to the eastern side of the Grand Banks, an area called Flemish Cap, where the fishing is much, much better. And they do really, really well. And he is aware because they get facts if you remember fax machines, he gets faxes of the weather forecast, but kind of ignores them because they're doing so well at the fishing. But then what happens is that the ice machine that they obviously have to have on board to keep all these swordfish that they're catching fresh for market, it stops working. So then they have to make a decision about coming back into port as soon as possible, because obviously these swordfish are going to start to deteriorate in quality really, really quickly. So he makes a decision with the five other crewmates that he's going to go straight back to Gloucester 
through the forecast of the yeah, storm, yeah. where it's going to be at its most intense. But sadly, they go through the eye of the storm and they're never seen again. All that is ever seen from the boat after that is fuel drums, some rescue beacons, which has got the initials AG on it. But none of the men are ever seen again. And there was lots of other rescue missions that took place. So there was yachts that were off Long Island that had to be rescued. A helicopter that was rescuing another boat actually had to ditch because it couldn't refuel from its fuel tanker. And just to put it into context, once the storm had dissipated and they totted up all the damage, it came to over $200 million right along the eastern seaboard and that there had been a death toll of 13. Mm. And also they indicate that the Andrea Gale goes down close to where the Titanic had gone down. I thought I recognised Graham Banks when you mentioned that. Yeah, yeah. So you see there's a lot of history here. And because of, as I say, it is so dangerous to fish here. It's difficult to imagine, Penny, how utterly terrifying that must have been for the people involved. You've mentioned before that you're generally a fair weather saleswoman, um, but you have had a slightly scary experience, haven't you? Hopefully nothing on this kind of scale. No, you're absolutely you're absolutely right, Helen. I mean, I sailed across the English Channel in a Gale Force 8 that went up to a severe uh, Gale Force 9. And I have to say it was like being on a roller coaster and it was in the dark as well. So you're just feeling the movement of the boat. So, yeah, it was a really scary experience. And I never want to repeat it, I can assure you. And these guys, I mean, they would have been extremely experienced, wouldn't they? They would have been out in all sorts of weathers before, but this was just something else. That's right. And I think the other thing to note was that the Andrea Gale had a sister ship called the Hannah Bowden, which was several hundred miles away from it. But it had the only female captain of the sword fishing fleet that were, were out in the Grand Banks. Her knowledge of meteorology and weather forecasting, I think, was probably quite high up compared to some of the other captains of the boats out there. In the book, it describes her having these conversations with Billy Tyne, the captain, and saying, look, you're sailing straight in to the middle of the peak of this storm. What are you doing? It's just going to be horrendous. So this is what the Observer's Handbook says about the Beaufort scale. Force zero, calm, sea like a mirror. Force one, light air. Ripples with the appearance of scales are formed, but without foam crests. Force three, gentle breeze, large wavelets. Crests begin to break. Foam of glassy appearance, perhaps scattered white horses. Force ten, storm. Very high waves with long overhanging crests. The resulting foam in great patches is blown in dense white streaks along the direction of the wind. On the whole, the surface of the sea takes a white appearance. The tumbling of the sea becomes heavy and shock-like, visibility affected. It's it's also interesting because we've got the you know the original Beaufort diary in the archive at the National Meteorological Archive, and that's got the first version of that Beaufort scale in it. A couple of different versions as he sort of decided how many how many levels he was going to have. At one point, it had thirteen, and then it 
then it had 12, which is what we're more used to. And he's talking there about the impacts on a, a ship of, of the fleet, a frigate, essentially. So it's kind of how it would move a frigate around and what sails you'd need to take in at any given point. But in some ways, I'd say, you know, it's his, his language is actually slightly more poetic, perhaps, than you're getting there in the Observer's Handbook. You feel more of a sense of impact and you know, impending doom in occasions. But I love the fact that the last one, Force 12, he just says, hurricane. Yes. <laughs> like, you, you, you're going to know what this means. <laughs> I don't need any further information. I have got a excerpt from The Perfect Storm, which I think might fit in very nicely with what you've just been talking about, Jeff, regarding the Beaufort scale. And it reads as follows. Fishermen say they can gauge how fast the wind is and how worried they should be by the sound it makes against the wire stays and outrigger cables. A scream means the wind is around force nine on the Beaufort scale, 40 or 50 knots. Force 10 is a shriek. Force 11 is a moan. Over force 11 is something fishermen don't want to hear. Linda Greenlaw, captain of the Hannah Bowden, the sister ship of the Andrea Gale, was in a storm when the wind registered 100 miles an hour before it tore the anemometer off the boat. The wind, she says, made a sound she'd never heard before, a deep tonal vibration like a church organ. There was no melody, though. It was a church organ played by a child. That is beautiful. You can hear it in your head too, can't you? It's descriptive enough that you can, you know what she means. You can hear a similar sort of effect on the lampposts in the Met Office car park. You can get a feel <laughs> for um, for how strong the wind is by the way the lampposts are howling. <laughs> can we think of any um, storms? Uh, I'm thinking the Royal Charter one, uh, Catherine, that was a pretty bad storm that happened off, uh, was it Liverpool Bay and Anglesey? The Royal Charter was a very nasty storm. It's still the worst to have affected the Irish Sea area. That sort of uh, whipped up off the Bay of Biscay and then travelled through the Irish Sea and eventually over northern England and out into the North Sea. And that resulted in the loss of uh, hundreds of vessels all around the coast. Um, was it a perfect storm? I don't know. It was certainly a very nasty one. Um, Trafalgar also gets references to a perfect storm. The battle's well known. What's not so well known is that literally immediately afterwards, um, the surviving ships of both fleets were affected by a huge, huge storm that went through the, the Trafalgar area. Hurricane force winds, whether it was a, an ex-hurricane, I honestly don't know, but it was certainly a very, very major storm. Went on for about three days and it involved the loss of more ships and men by a very, very long way than the actual battle itself. But what was interesting is the very last command that Admiral Nelson gave before he died was that the ship should anchor after the battle. And that was because he had noticed that something was changing, that maybe a storm was coming and they would be pushed onto a lee shore. They didn't anchor and there were consequences as a result, but he'd seen something that no one else did. I was also going to ask you about the Armada fleet, you know, going back to the 16th century, you know, when it yeah. got scattered to the four winds, didn't it? And it helped, obviously, the UK. But I just wondered if there was any history around that, whether we have any knowledge about the storm that scattered the Armada fleet. I'm not an expert in it, but certainly, yes, you know, they did encounter some poor weather on, on the way. But actually, one of the bigger issues was... Um, after they'd sort of come into the English Channel area and, and had some of their first engagements, there was then a major storm and they were forced 
rather than being able to go back through the channel, they were forced up the North Sea and around the top of Scotland because the winds forced them north. And that resulted in the loss of huge sections of the Armada fleet and essentially large part of the Spanish fleet in general. And that was you know, the weather really sort of told against them there because it just forced them north when they all they wanted to do was go south. I think, you know, the UK is not the only country that's been helped out in times of crisis by the weather. I think um, the Japanese word kamikaze comes from, uh, doesn't that mean divine wind? That's the limit of my knowledge. But all I remember was um, there was a particular conflict going on uh, and it was looking like Japan were going to lose until a storm came along and completely uh, sank the enemy. And they believed that was a divine intervention for that. So, um, Well, that's interesting, Jeff, because there are a few books based around making weather and how that could potentially be used in wars and conflicts. Um, I think Michael Crichton wrote one on that topic. I must I must revisit that book because it's a fascinating concept and one that Michael Crichton does well, where he takes something that's just on the edge of what we can achieve with science, Reality. like Jurassic, the famous Jurassic Park, <laughs> yeah. um, and turns it into something that's actually quite believable. And, and you can imagine a, a world where you can create weather in order to, you know, defeat the enemy, for example. And Jurassic Park, uh, all the action takes place during a storm. It does, it does, yes. So, Helen, should we move on to you? Now, uh, you've actually um, spoken to your author, I believe. I did. I was really privileged to be able to have a a, a very long chat with Phaedra, actually. She was very generous with her time. We spoke for over an hour, but here's a little excerpt of some of our conversation. It became my motivation to show the social aspects of weather forecasting. Yes, it's a natural science, but weather is not what is happening up in the sky. It is what we feel down in our homes and in our skin. And then what does this mean? What are the implications and complications of that? In your book, you talk about different audiences who are receiving that weather information. And one of the areas you focused on, which was really interesting, was the fishers. Just tell us a bit more about them and how they use the weather forecast. So you have the fishers who are the professional, day in, day out, people who go into the water. They have a very intuitive understanding of the weather. They are able to understand the forecast, to interpret the forecast and add to it their own knowledge. And even if you will beat the forecast, because a lot of fishers are going to stay off because it's a bad forecast, but I can better interpret it and go out, get the fish, and then fetch a high price in the auction. So you have that very sophisticated weather expertise of a very particular microclimate of the weather, and you really have a gamut of different understandings of communication needs. And the question is then how do we, you know, do we get them to listen and pay attention to trust that message? Even though they understand it, they might not trust it, and that is a step further for making the message understandable. So uh, Phaedra is a social scientist. She spent around two years shadowing some weather forecasters in the American National Weather Service, or rather at least one of their many, I think 120 or so offices. And the reason she did that was to understand the decision making process and the complexities of turning data from a computer model into something real and useful for the variety of customers and users that both they in the States and and we in the UK have. Phaedra talks about the expertise required of operational meteorologists 
and that it's not just a knowledge and understanding of the physics of the atmosphere that's required, but really incorporating some of the intuition or what we might refer to as gut feel of the weather too. And I found this really interesting. And I started to wonder how much, you know, true pure science there is and, and how much of that intuition there is for weather forecasters. And certainly Penny and I, we've both been operational meteorologists in our past. I don't know what, what you would say about that. What thoughts do you have? I, I would totally agree with you, Helen. I've been uh, a weather forecaster in some shape or form for the last 38 years. I know I only look 29, but yes. yeah, you know, I, <laughs> I've had a, a sort of weather forecasting career for 38 years and I, I would agree with you. I mean, when I first started off, you had two or three years of seeing all the seasons before you became a weather forecaster working on your own because you needed to go through those seasons to build up your experience, if you like. It so, has been said that it does take some guts to be a, a weather forecaster when you've got one of the largest supercomputers to work with <laughs> and you take its results and go, nah. nah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Something right. that Phaedra noticed when she was spending time with the weather forecasters and surprised her, I think, was how, like you say, Jeff, that you've got all this data, all this information coming at you from the supercomputer. And the vast majority of the time, it's really great. It's really very accurate. But yet the forecasters will often pop outside or, you know, at least stick their head through the window to see what is actually happening in the real world where they are. And that's kind of counterintuitive because for a start, that's a very localised view of the weather. And secondly, you might wonder what's the point when you've got this wealth of information in front of you, but it is that feel for what's going on. And that's what weather forecasting is, is all about, really. It's not just that there is, you know, some precipitation falling from the sky. It's how, how's that going to affect you? And she actually talks about a quote here from the book, meteorological cognition materialises at the intersection of people, things and nature. And I thought that was that was fascinating. So it's about what she calls the social consequences of the atmosphere, which I really like. I, and I would absolutely agree with you, Helen. I think as weather forecasters, we're outdoor people by and large, aren't yeah. we? So we're really interested not only in what's happening in the atmosphere, but what's happening in the countryside, how that weather is affecting flora and fauna, how it's affecting human beings as well. So I, I would totally agree with you. And I think also as well, yes, computers do a fantastic job, don't they, by and large, when it comes to weather forecasting. But you still need that experience of a human weather forecaster because they can bring in a wealth of experience and just, you know, sometimes we are very good at picking up the strengths and weaknesses of weather model forecasts we can say, oh, well, yeah, that doesn't quite look right, you know, uh, because we know that the model's not very strong in this area or, or it is very, very strong in this area. So we're, yeah. we're happy to go with it. You know, we've got that certainty around forecasters. There's still, I think, room for a human weather forecaster. They're Absolutely. Still, they're still adding value, aren't they? Um, and of course, weather forecasts won't tell you what impacts you're going to get from the weather that you're going to see. I was interested with Phaedra's book. Does she sort of see forecasts as being a particular type of person that can handle dealing with that kind of, you're taking on board a lot of knowledge and what you interpret and what you feed out. There's a lot riding on it. How does she see the people? I think she she sort of 
uses medicine and then economics as the closest analogies of that sort of decision-making process. But I think even those have quite big differences because as I've mentioned, it really is that intersection of the natural sciences and the social sciences, and actually to some extent, the data sciences as well. So it's, it's a very complex process. And we're looking at very different timescales. We're looking right the way from well, actually, potentially going back in time, but certainly from now through to days, weeks, potentially even months ahead. And when you get into the climate realm, years or decades ahead. So it, it really is incredibly complex and it does take a very particular type of person. I'm not sure I can distill into one sentence what type of person that is. <laughs> A master of uncertainty. That's the one. <laughs> and actually, speaking of data science, that was something else I wanted to highlight. Something that fascinates me is where we can combine data sets and look for patterns of how people's behaviour is affected by the weather. So, for example, if we think about retail, it's probably fairly obvious that retail will be affected in some way by the weather. So in the first instance, it's likely that if it's absolutely chucking it with rain, and very windy, people are probably going to put off their shop in the first place. And when they do go shopping, what they buy will be affected by the weather and the weather forecast, in fact. An interesting stat I found from a, a US piece of research by Walmart was that the ideal conditions for people buying berries is light winds and below 27 degrees. Now, I can't give you the reason why, but that's what the data tells us. And also, I think I might have mentioned this on the podcast before, actually, but the sale of cat litter shoots through the roof when there's snow in the forecast. And that's for two reasons. One is because, as I know, as a cat owner, they can be quite picky about the type of weather they go outside in, but also because it's really good for using as grit to make your paths less slippery. So, yeah. Well, you're going so to say that bit. snow scares cats then. I thought that might well, have been it, the reason. It kind of does. I mean, I wouldn't say scares, but they don't like getting their little paws very cold and wet. <laughs> well, that's been fascinating. Thanks to uh, everybody there. That's it for this episode of Mostly Weather. My thanks to panellists Helen Roberts, Penny Tranter and Catherine Ross. Also, thanks go to producer Claire Nazir and to editor Adrian Holloway. I'm Jeff Norwood-Brown. Do join us again next time as we delve once again into the weird and wonderful world of weather. Mostly Weather is a podcast by the UK Met Office.